Now is time for us to get into uh, the second week as we've resumed our study in the book of James. What a great book that we find ourselves, not by my design, in the new year looking at this book that's oftentimes called the book of wisdom. It's like the New Testament's version of Proverbs. And it will be especially good to be mindful of that reputation of this book this morning because we're going to really go into the theme of wisdom given to us by uh, the book of James. And uh, before we read the scripture, I just want to get you ready, put your listening ears on, uh, because most of our time this morning in the Word is going to be framed around a question that actually comes up in James chapter 3, verse 13. It, it really flows from a conversation that we had with the book of James last week about bridling our tongue about the importance of knowing how powerful our words are. And the whole theme last week was be careful with your desire to be a teacher or in the cultural context, an influencer, because your words matter. And James is speaking into a, an audience where it almost seems like there was a bunch of eagerness to just talk about everything they knew and teach the word or give advice. And James says, careful because you got to really know how important your words are. And we're going to go to a part two of that. He's going to ask the question in the context of that conversation last week, which is, are you sure you're in a position to be giving advice? Listen to this question that comes up in James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? So with last view in mind or, or the context of the book of James where we find it, it's, it's almost as if James is saying, who is actually worth listening to? Who is worth the, the, the pulpit, the stage, the platform that they stand on to say, here's what I want to teach you. And, and last week we said, careful because words matter. And this week we say, words matter because wisdom matters. Teaching is not random. The advice that you give and receive is not random. And this question, who is actually wise, is so important for us to get right because this sanctuary is full of opportunities and requirements and needs for you to make decisions about your life that require wisdom, that require you to know which way to navigate. And I think of, of the climate of the world that we live in right now, we are at an all-time need for wisdom. Even the prayer requests that come through, it's like missionaries and people are sick and we're trying to navigate the, 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 the chaos of the moment. And it's like wisdom the, the, the relationships that exist in this room, some broken, some strained, some hard, you need wisdom. The questions that you have about what you're doing with your life in this new year and your career and your finances, it's wisdom is required. And the question that James is getting at is like, who's got it? Who are you listening to? Who are you if you're not someone that's operating under wisdom? And so today we're going to look at this question as James unfolds the, the text before us to say, here's how you know you have it. Here's how you know you don't. And it's based off your life. So the benefits of getting this question right very quickly, there's two reasons that I want you to think about as to why you should be answering this question in your life. Who's got wisdom? Who should I be listening to? Number one is that the theme of the book of James is a theme of wisdom. 
Whether you're in trial, whether you're confused about life, when you're dealing with different uh, uh, social groups, rich and poor, when you're trying to figure out how to actually apply your religion to your life, James and all of those bumps in the roads will say, you got to have wisdom. And this isn't a theme of James. This is a theme of the entire book of the Bible. The entire book of the Bible is, is under the, the theme, uh, uh, the idea that there is a God that founded the world with design and purpose and a right way to live and to be. And that's called wisdom. And that is what we're after, all of us. Look what it says in Proverbs chapter 4. Do not forsake wisdom. She will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Jesus will compare wisdom to the foundation of a building. It is the thing that God gives you by which you build your life. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt wisdom, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. Who's got wisdom? Well, you get the question right so that you can be someone who is walking in the way that God has designed so that he can honor you and exalt you and bring you to the place of life and life more abundant as he has designed your life to experience. The second reason to get this question right, given to us from the book of wisdom in the Proverbs, is in Proverbs chapter 13. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. So it's not only a question that you ask the mirror, you're, at, you're also being called to set your table, set your counsel, set your relationships in order because every relationship that you have in your life, the people that you walk with are in fact influencing and shaping you. You walk with wise people, people that are making right decisions about what God has intended, and you yourself have a little bit of wisdom that you impart from that. You walk with fools, and it says that your life will be destroyed. So it's a question, as we ask, who has wisdom? We ask in the mirror, and we also ask as, who should I be even listening to, getting counsel from, walking with in life? So before we get to the way James is going to offer us the wisdom, let's define it very quickly. And I want to offer you two definitions, because as you read through uh, these verses that will take us to the end of the chapter, you'll actually see two pictures of wisdom. This is not a sermon to ask you to consider living a life of wisdom, this is a sermon to say, which wisdom are you using? Because all of you are standing on a foundation. And all of you are using some filters and capacities to make decisions. It's not a matter of, which, of, of wisdom, it's which wisdom are you using? And there's a working definition of wisdom that's fairly broad that seems to be a default setting to the wisdom of the world. It says this, Wisdom defined is the body of knowledge and principles that develop within a, specific, a specified society or period. So there is what's called the wisdom of the age, a cultural zeitgeist by which we all kind of have some ground rules and, 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 and understand the way forward. You live in Boise, Idaho, in the United States in 2022 with certain technologies and ways of life that you have picked up that could be considered wisdom for you to just fit into society and to understand the way that the society cultural norms work. That's part of the wisdom of the age. And James will discuss that wisdom, where it comes from and where it leads, but there's also another wisdom that we find throughout the word. It's given to us 
in picture through the book of James when he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him go to God and God will give it liberally. There's a wisdom that doesn't come just from living at a certain time and place and understanding the norms. There's a wisdom that's ancient that comes from God himself. Listen to this theologian's definition. Wisdom defined this way is seeing things from God's perspective and living your life accordingly. What does God view in the modern day that we live in? What does God see when we look out and see chaos and confusion and questions and we have things on our heart that we need answers for? Wisdom, according to this definition, is understanding what God sees. And then taking the perspective of God and living your life by it. So we, we have the book of James as an example of one way this is played out. Remember how this whole study started. Consider it joy in trial. Now that is a perspective-shifting call or command. Trials are not specifically joyful, or it's not like your first reaction to go through trouble and trying times and difficult seasons and just feel joy. But James says, consider joy based off the goodness of God that goes beyond your circumstantial sight and understanding. And then he says this, but if you lack wisdom, go to God. In other words, every one of you, regardless of circumstance, regardless of finances, regardless of health and wealth, are called to experience a sustaining joy of God. And if you don't see it, if you don't see how God's sovereignty and his view of your life can lead you to joy, all you're lacking is wisdom. You just need to know what God knows. You need to see what God sees about everything you're going through. And there's a perspective shift that happens when you understand the heart of God that gives you wisdom to live accordingly. So the title of this message is going to be Knowing the Ways of Wisdom. And as we consider this, there will be two filters by which we will use our diagnostics or our knowing by. And that is the substance of the wisdom and the source of the wisdom. The substance of the wisdom comes to us even in the verse that we first read. It says, you will know wisdom by conduct and the meekness of wisdom. It means there's something coming out of your knowledge. Your wisdom should be shown, it says in verse 13. It should be on display. And that display is based off what's inside of you. There is a substance and a source to the way that you live your life. The substance is the things that we see coming out of you that anyone can look into. And the source is where that stuff comes from. And this is really a continuation of a theme that we left off with last uh, sermon or last time in the Word. When James says in verse 11 of the same chapter, Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? And now that was in the context of James saying, how can you bless God and curse people out of the same mouth? There, there is a source of your blessing that should be substantiated in the way that your display of words is seen by everyone else. And in the same way, James is going to give us an expose of two wisdoms and look at the source and the substance of both of them. So the first way we answer the question, who is wise? James says, well, look at the substance of your life. Do you have good conduct with your wisdom? In other words, are you doing more than just learning about God and his ways? Are the things that you learn about God, his heart, his character, his will, are they on display in your conduct? That's what it says in verse 13, that they should be shown by good conduct. Here is how Charles Spurgeon, someone wiser than myself, 
puts it for us to understand this. He says, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as knowing a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Your conduct played out is part of the substance of your wisdom. I think of what, what, what Spurgeon says, there's no greater fool than a knowing fool. If you know it but don't know how to live it, that's worse than not knowing it at all. I, I think of marrying my wife. She's a Colombian, so her native tongue is Spanish, and her family's native tongue, specifically my in-laws, is Spanish. But lucky for me, I studied Spanish all through high school, so the knowledge was up there. I knew it. It's like I, I, I remember the, 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 the graphs for conjugating verbs, and, and I remember the different f- flashcards that I would use to try to get the language in there. So I, with great confidence, I walked into my marriage like, oh, this is going to be great for me because I speak it. But I didn't speak it. I only knew it. And so the first couple of years of my marriage were me looking like a fool professing to be wise because I didn't know how to use it. And language is a good example of this because wisdom is like the language of heaven. It's something that you're given with knowledge, but really full immersion is the only way that you get to experience it is when it's conduct on display. And here's the second substance that James leads off with. The the substance is conduct and also meekness, which means there is a right action and there's also a right attitude. Meekness is the attitude of our wisdom on display for others to experience. Um, Because we're using working definitions, why don't we do one for meekness? Here is a definition for meekness that if you've ever heard a sermon on meekness, you've heard this definition. It's almost cliche at this point, but I use it because of the the secondary example works perfectly for the book of of James chapter 3. Meekness defined is strength under control. Meekness is not that we are, uh, you know, ashamed of what we believe and we're quiet and we've got wisdom, but we don't want to actually use it in any kind of way that would ever bring attention to ourselves. Meekness is the power of the wisdom of God, the creator of the universe that designed everything according to wisdom, controlled with a spirit of gentleness, controlled with a reflection on the heart of God. And It's worth pointing out that James chapter 3 gives us a picture of strength under control all through the expose on the tongue. Remember what we learned about the bride, the bridal. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 3. Indeed, we put in horses' mouths that they may obey us, bridles, and we turn their whole body. Strength of a horse, bridled under control. And this is seen in the ship and in the fire and in the tongue. The strength of the tongue. The tongue, a mighty little weapon that can set fire ablaze the course of human nature, put bridled under the power of the word of God. This is meekness. And I belabor this because wisdom in our age is at an all-time need, but it must be the wisdom that gives, uh, is prescribed by God, which comes in a package of not only action, but also attitude. We can't separate those things. We can try, but James will tell us as we go further down the road of having action with bad attitude that we're actually lying when we do that. Another example. When my 
children get into a fight, I need to start qualifying. My children are just normal sinners like all of us. So when anyone gets into a fight, I would recommend this. The wisdom of an argument can lead to the power of forgiveness. When an argument happens, I, 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 it's a gospel moment if I'm in the spirit. I want to train my children the way they should go, that when arguments happen, we learn how to forgive, offer forgiveness, and reconcile. And that wisdom is, is given as a command in my household. And the action can be there, and the attitude can completely ruin it. So when I say it's time for you to reconcile, uh, oftentimes the, 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 the party that was hurt will say, I forgive you, fine, and they'll cross their arms and walk away. And, I, and, I, and maybe this is just the, the dad in me that wants to see this played out. Maybe I would let it slide if it was not my own kids. But I stop them in their tracks and I say, that ain't it. Just saying you forgive someone is not wisdom. Just saying, okay, I'll do it because you say so, dad, is not wisdom. There is an action with the attitude of meekness that now elevates us as separate. We're not just the right action people. We also have the right heart. And that's why it's worth belaboring meekness because this is the call of the believer to be both power under control and also the grace and gentleness of the Spirit of God. And look how often this will come up for the New Testament writers to give charge to the people of God in navigating wisdom with the world or wisdom with the church or wisdom with another believer. We can't separate the two. And yet, we live in a day where we need to be revived, not only in our desire for wisdom, but also in our desire for the heavenly spirit of wisdom. Look what it says in the meekness of wisdom for a couple other examples for the office of the believer. Remember, this is all in the context of teaching, so it's worth looking at teachers as sometimes they are great examples of getting this right and wrong. But look what the New Testament says to teachers as they administer wisdom to people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. The teacher's role is not to simply be the smartest guy in the room. The, the believer's role in equipping others that they would be built up in the knowledge of God is not simply to exchange information. There is a relationship that's happening with the word of God to build people up in the spirit of God. Gentleness, meekness, and humility are all part of the cup of the teacher that offers the word of God. And then it says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, for all of us considering what we would learn and do with wisdom. Because when you get the wisdom of God, not only do you have access to the perspective of joy, but that joy overcomes you with hope. Imagine going through trials that are difficult and hard, and you pray for wisdom, and God unlocks his perspective for what he's doing in your life through the trial, and all of a sudden you are very hopeful. This is the goal. This is the hope for us. This is how we are set apart in a hopeless generation. And yet, what does it say of the hope that is unlocked through wisdom? 1 Peter chapter 3, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and do so with gentleness and respect. Our hope is not a tool that we use to get points to separate ourselves from the hopeless losers of the world. 
Our hope is a way to be separated because we are so confident in God because of the wisdom he's given us for his plans. And that hope is supposed to be shared as people approach us with the spirit of meekness, the spirit of gentleness. We do not win people into the kingdom with arguing, simply debating, and proving that we're right. We have the wisdom, the action with the attitude. And finally, maybe this is something that some of you need to hear that is part of the heart of God for your attendance this morning. Because coming to church can oftentimes be a wrestling match with your doubt and with your guilt and with the reasons that you felt separated from the body of Christ. And some of you here, no doubt, this morning got a phone call that you weren't sure you wanted to take, but you took it and they brought you to church and you walked in uncertain of what the response of the body of believers that sees you walk through the door may be. And the answer is, you need wisdom in your healing and your restoration as to whatever reason you were separated, and that wisdom needs to be delivered to you in the restorative power of meekness. Look what it says in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch of yourself lest you be tempted as well. The substance of our wisdom is the way that we respond to the perspective of God, and it is not only seen in our action, but it is seen in the attitude that we have in all of the ways that we get to display that good conduct to another. If you're here in need of restoration, allow me to offer you the fresh water of God's word. He wants you to come back to his fold, and he wants you to be received with gentleness not a feeling of shame or condemnation or more hurt or more pain or more guilt. He, the, the, the Lord restores you with a spirit of gentleness, and it is our job in wisdom to represent that to the church, to the outside world. And a reminder on the power of meekness comes as we overlap the book of James with the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus promises us. Here is wisdom for you to put, here's something for you to put your hope in from the wisdom of God. This is his plan. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There is a certain amount of faith that the wisdom of God will require you to walk in. And as we look at the two sources of wisdom, one will lead you to foolishness, and one will require you to put your faith in the plan of God. And the plan of God, one way is revealed, is that when you walk in meekness, when you become a person that wants God's wisdom on display through gentleness and kindness and a way to explain the heart of God through your actions, it says you inherit the earth. It says this is part of the prize of following God. This is part of the, the way that the wisdom of God will exalt you to great heights if you trust him and if you love him and if you walk in the wisdom according to what he's called you to do. But now we look at the first source of wisdom or the first danger sign, because this could be a very short sermon. When we read this verse, it could end right there. Who among you is wise? Let him show it by your good conduct and the way that you're meek. And all I'd have to do if this was not a complicated wrestling match with our flesh and fallen nature is say, who believes in the Bible? And you'd raise your hand and it's like, great, you're wise. And then I'd say, who doesn't believe in God? And you would raise your hand. I'd say, get wise and be over. But that's not it. Because like most diagnostics of the gospel, or like, like most self-inventories that the, the word calls us to, when it holds up the mirror to us, typically it's pointing out things in us that we'd overlooked. 
It's pointing out things to us that we wanted to answer simply, and now our sin complicates things. And, of course, it is true of wisdom. As we go through farther and farther down this passage of Scripture that leads us to the source of wisdom, we get farther and farther from the confidence in our own ability to walk in it. And here's an example of it, that, uh, James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. He says, anybody who's wise will see it through your conduct and your meekness, but not so fast. Lest you think the sermon's over, here's something that we have to watch out for. Here's a new substance that might be coming out of the source of our motivation that could be very dangerous. And what James is doing is saying, man, it would be so easy to judge everything by the exterior conduct. And we, we, we fall into that temptation. We are hit by a sledgehammer when we look at the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus says, I know you want to look at the Pharisees to see who is righteous, but I want to look at your heart. And James says, yes, wisdom has something to do with the way you're living your life and your spirit of gentleness, but now let's consider the motivation of your heart in a true evaluation of how you're walking in the wisdom of God requires you to go beyond just a view of your calendar, just a view of the people you're interacting with and the things you're doing, and it requires you to consider the own motivation of your heart as to why you're after wisdom in the first place. He says you might have envy and self-seeking in your hearts. This is what I will now call the bitter substance. That the substance that comes out of the well that is not fresh water. It is pointing you to a, a, a flow of water that James would call earlier bitter. And it, it requires us to consider where that bitter water is coming from. But part of that bitter substance for all of us to consider today, you've got plans for the new year, you've got reasons to be wise. Are we sure that we've completely allowed God to crucify in our flesh envy and self-seeking? Uh, self-seeking righteousness. Those are two substances that will point us to a false source of wisdom. And this is a journey that all of us will be on with these two overflows. It seems to be the core of human nature to, to, to fall into the envy where you look out and you say, I want what they have, not what I have. Or self-seeking, which is, I want all of the ways that decisions are made to actually serve me first, and we'll talk about people second. So I'll use my own household again. Um, we have a rule in our house. Whoever sets the table assigns the seats. It's a good rule. If you're looking for a, a way to get your kids engaged in helping set the table, this is a great reward for them to be motivated to set the table because then they get to play chief, which is what every kid is trying to do, and they get to boss around their siblings, which is like the greatest reward for a kid. And in this experiment of who sets the table, assigns the seat, you see an, an overflow, almost nightly, of the human nature that every one of us wrestles with when it comes to the wisdom of God bridling our lives. Not as an option, but as a bridle of our lives. Because what happens inevitably is that the person assigning the seats puts themselves exactly where they want to be. Typically, it's like, I'm going to sit here between mom and dad, and you guys are going to sit at the ends of the table away from us. It's like... There's the self-seeking desire. And then whoever's sitting that didn't set the table looks out and says, I wanted that seat. 
I don't want this seat. I want that seat. And it's a great, it's like the school of human nature. And it's also a school of understanding how we respond to the wisdom of God. Because although the principle wasn't modeled after the heart of God, I see it in the heart of God. Who sets the table assigns the seats. And the reality is God sets the table. God is the designer of your life. And it says that he has prepared good works for us to walk in. He gets to call the shots in your life. They're good. They're better than what you would choose. But they're his, that you would walk in. And he gets to assign the gift. He gets to assign the call. He's set the design of your life. And he has called you to live out according to his perspective for your life. And what happens? He set the table. He assigned the seats. And I cross my arms and I think, this isn't what I would have chose. This isn't the seat that I wanted. I wanted that seat. Or, um, if I was in charge, things would look a lot better for my personal portfolio. So now there's a tension between me submitting to the wisdom of God and living out my own wisdom. Because if I'm calling the shots, I get to call the seat, and I get to, to do what I want to do for me. And this is true of all of your lives. There is a wrestling match between your desires and the wisdom of God. It's one of the reasons that wisdom is a faith play in your life because the Proverbs writers will say that you can't lean on your own understanding and also walk in the wisdom of God. There is a submission to God's plan that leaves you walking in his wisdom and rejecting your own. So self, uh, self-seeking righteousness or self-seeking desires and envy will violate uh, the wisdom of God in your life. And what happens? Now follow the source. Follow where your heart overflows into those things and what happens. One of the ways that this is played out is seeing the source. The source of your wisdom, where you get the motivation, is living in your heart. But Jesus says that it comes from what your heart treasures. This is really what's informing all of that envy and self-seekingness is what is your heart really after? And James will give you an answer. If you've got that substance, here's your source. Verse 15, the, that wisdom that is producing that substance or that water is coming out as your fountain that's bitter and salty doesn't come from above. It's earthly, it's sensual, and it's demonic. This is why it's so important for us to consider Who is wise? What is the source of your decision-making capacity? James says, when it's not from above, you have three options. Other theologians have have called this the triad of temptation. Here's uh, R.C. Sproul on this passage. He says, the great triad of enemies for Christian growth contain the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you are not allowing the pure wisdom of God to shape and form your life however he chooses, there will be an influence of the world, earthly wisdom, of the flesh, sensual wisdom, or of the devil, which is that demonic power that pulls us away from the plan of God and takes us right back to the original fall. And so there are entire works and books that are written on the triad of temptation for the for the life of the believer, but we consider them briefly now, you think about the world and the temptations of the world. The world says, treasure earth. Build up your kingdom. 
The wisdom of this age is that you've got a short window and there's a dream that you got to chase to build out everything that you can get your hands on. And we are all tempted to be to pulled into that tide. The temptation of earthly treasure. And then there's you. And you have your own body of temptation that is totally violating the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, as you can see this play out, is considering others. It's gentle and it's meek and it's on display for others to experience. The wisdom of sensuality in the flesh is completely motivated about how you feel. Well, how do I feel? I don't feel like preaching. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like loving people. I don't feel like meeting my neighbor. But I do feel like giving myself a pat on the back and building myself up and, and working on on my identity complex and thinking about me. That's part of the wisdom, sensuality. And there is a wisdom that is not from above that is very real in the age we live in that is slowly less and less and less talked about, which is the reality that there is a power of darkness. When you look at the news feeds and the wars and the rumors of wars and all of the challenges of the world, it is that we live in a fallen world that wants you to treasure it. It is that you live in a fallen body that wants you to pleasure it. And it is, in fact, that there is an evil and dark spiritual realm that wants you to reject the worship of God. That is the very first temptation in violation of the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God in the garden said, trust me, don't have the knowledge of evil. And the demonic force came in in the form of a serpent and said, did God really say that you would die? Because maybe you would actually be like him. Maybe you would be a God. Maybe there wouldn't need to be a worship of a higher power because you would be the power. And that is part of the temptation of the age. Treasure the earth, pleasure yourself, and live outside of an acknowledgement of the power of God so that you can be your own. And James says, that wisdom is going to end badly. That is not wisdom at all. That is actually the wisdom of fools. Throughout Scripture, we have the storyline of what happens when people think that they're wiser than God. And one of the best ways it's summed up is in the condemnation of humanity, all of us, to take the reins of our lives and do whatever we want with them. It's in Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, they describe a moment that happens in the heart of humanity that turns its back from God to something else. Verse 22 it says, They profess to be wise and they become fools. Welcome to the world. The verse seems more valid now than when it was written in its day. And how did this profession of wisdom turn them into fools? It goes on to say in verse 25, They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They, they've turned out of priority the worship of the almighty, all-wise, all-powerful God and have placed on his throne part of creation. Creation of earth, creation of you, and creation of the things that would pull you towards worship of something other than God. What's the source of your wisdom? The people that you listen to, the teachers and influencers and the people you're subscribing, are they earthly? Are they fleshly? Are they demonic? Or are they of God? Because here's the warning before we get to the good stuff. Before we get to the heavenly wisdom, James is going to emphasize a second time the substance of the source of the bitter fountain. Look what he says. In James 3.16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. 
If you haven't removed that human nature thing to be envious of others and to seek your own uh, well-being first and foremost, it is a result that ends with confusion and with evil. Welcome to the world we live in. Welcome to the reality of what happens when you live in a culture that says, we don't want to worship God anymore, we'll worship anything else. What happens when you live in a city that suppresses the truth and the reality of God for a lie? What happens when you profess to be wise apart from the wisdom of God? You become a fool, and what will follow is confusion and evil. It's what waits in every way. And I know that as James was writing this letter to the churches that he sent it to, there were no chapter breaks and there were no verse breaks. These, are all, these all come much later. So in no way did James mean to give a perfect contrast to what we often call the gospel by our chapter and verse breaks, but he did. Because we just read James 3.16. And John 3.16, I can't help but think of it because it's just everywhere. It's the proclamation that the believer holds up to anyone who would, would have a moment's view of what we believe. God loved the world so much that he sent his son that no one would perish in this way. That no one would walk in their own wisdom towards foolishness, that foolishness turning into the wrath of your own folly. Your mistakes will be your snare. God loved the world, John 3.16. He sends his son to intervene and to stop that through the wisdom that he would display on the cross. That's the gospel. But we find ourselves today in a verse that's equally important and should be displayed as equally as much. James 3.16, it is the anti-gospel. The gospel is the good news, and this is the reality of the news, the bad news that happens apart from God in your life. We read it again, where envy and self-seeking exist, the world, the flesh, and the devil, where they have gotten a hold of your heart to make you think you're being wise, but you're walking towards your own desires, evil and confusion. Who is wise? This is why we got to answer the question. You listen to the wrong source, you have the wrong substance coming out of your life, and you're walking towards evil and confusion. So our wisdom intervenes to, to course correct our lives. So now we come to the contrast, the beautiful contrast, the gospel in wisdom. James will now give us the source of the good wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I want to look at seven things that James just listed as the good stuff. The substance, the fresh water that comes out of the life in good conduct and meekness when they are rooted in the fountain of God's wisdom. But before we look at that, we remember source and substance. Don't overlook the source. The source of wisdom prescribed from God, it says James chapter 1, verse 17, the wisdom from above. So easy to read that so quickly. And yet, who is wise? The question of the hour. The, the wise person among us is only as wise as he is receiving from above. There is no wisdom apart from God. He founded the earth in wisdom. 
James says, if you lack wisdom, go to God and he'll give it liberally. But we belabor this point now because what we're doing now is not an act of religion or tradition in its intended purpose. The intended purpose of this moment is to come here and say, we are seeking above. All week long, we're, 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 we're left and we're right, we're down, we go neutral, and we, we, we try in the discipline of the Spirit to look above. And today, corporately, we say, we acknowledge the above. We acknowledge that truth comes from heaven. We acknowledge that true wisdom is found in the Word. We acknowledge that the pleasure that is offered to us in sensuality, which is false wisdom, is actually found in the presence of God. Above is where wisdom comes from. Know the source. And as you consider the definition of wisdom, to know God's perspective for your life to live out accordingly, you now consider the source of your decision-making capacity. Are you someone that runs to the source, the fresh water, the abundant life that God wants to give us through his word? The word is the, the wisdom that comes from above. Are you someone that runs to the Lord through prayer? If you don't have wisdom, come to him. Wisdom from above through prayer. And then we come to the list. Seven ways of wisdom. I, I said it of the flesh, the world, and the devil. There are complete works on the triad of temptation. And there are books that can be written about every one of these things. So as I fly over them from a 30,000-foot view... I encourage you to do what I got to do this week, which was to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul given to the church in Philippi when he said, whatever's good, meditate. Because wisdom is not something that can be contained just by information and knowledge. This is something that you have to allow the Spirit of God to impart into your heart. What does this list look like? for your specific life, for your family, for your business, for your school, for your friendships, for your strained relationships, for the person that you're reaching out to. How does this apply to all of the ways that you need to respond to God? The answer comes from the Lord, not from me. But we go through the list shortly, or, or with the time that we have. Um, there's a woman in our church who came up to me a couple weeks ago. Actually, it was her husband because she was being humble and said, hey, I just want to let you know, my wife memorized the whole book of James, not to be boastful, not to make it a the name will not be shared, but it was just, she just has loved it and she wants it to be in her heart. Now there's, in, in, in self-seeking and envy, there's ways to make that an idol, but hear the heart behind this. She just wanted it. She wanted it in her life. So she spent a year memorizing it. And it inspired me, but I'm nowhere near memorizing the entire book. You probably aren't either. But if you're looking for maybe one step towards that goal, memorize this passage. Uh, maybe a challenge for you is to, to take the word of God and say, this is so important for your life. This will set you apart to be such an essence of the character of God for your world that it's worth knowing. It's worth holding in your heart. It says, first, it is pure. And it says, first, pure, then, to really emphasize the importance of allowing God's wisdom to be clutter-free in your heart. 
you know, the, the impure wisdom or the defiled wisdom is tangled up with your own stuff, your own envy and your own uh, desires and your self-seeking nature. And James says, but when it comes from God, God's wisdom isn't self-seeking. It's not envious. It's pure. It's good for the plans of God to bless you. And so wisdom starts with a purity, a refining to get the clutter of religion and self out of your life. And then it says it's peaceable. One of the ways that we'll see the substance of wisdom play out in our lives and the big payoff at the very end is that when you walk in the wisdom of God, you are granted the peace of God. There's so much to be anxious about. There's so much to be worried about. When you don't see the way forward, it's pressure. And yet when God imparts wisdom that goes beyond what you can see, he gives you peace. That's why, again, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication, offer your petitions to God, and his peace will surround you. You'll walk in his wisdom, and no matter what comes at you, you'll say, God is good still, and I trust him. And that will give you a sense of peace and of calm. Then it says, it's gentle. It's meek. It's the action of God's desired will for your life with the attitude of God. I thought of this next one the most for my life, willing to yield, um, maybe because this one was the most glaring failure that I've had in wisdom on this list in, in, in probably the last couple of weeks. I fail in it all the time. But um, for those of you who come to our Wednesday night study uh, or have been around a while, you know Tom Velasco. I point here because he usually sits here. One of my great friends, and he came over last week. We were just hanging out, talking about God, enjoying life. And then we decided to pull out backgammon. <laughs> And uh, backgammon is an ancient game that maybe some of you play. I know some of you play because I've played you and lost. Uh, and when, when Tom and I play backgammon, we're not really good enough to know how to set it up. So we always have to Google it and look, and maybe you're that way too. On this particular instance, we look at the setup. We, 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 we get it all going. I put the board in front of us, and uh, he says, you set it up wrong. And I go, nope, I got the Internet right here. This is how you set it up. He's like, well... He pulled up his. He says, no, this is how you set it up. And so now we're dueling. We're fighting. We're two great friends that just can't get through it. And uh, we were just staring at each other and finally says, I can't play in these conditions. <laughs> and I was looking at him like, I'm so glad you said that. I think you should leave. <laughs> and he did. He left. Tom and I, we've resolved everything. But uh, as he's leaving, he looked at me and said, I don't think we should ever play backgammon again. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> and we hung out the next day, totally fine. And um, I laugh about it now. But how quick an elder and a pastor at your church can break fellowship in our stubbornness. And maybe I, this one was elevated in my life because it seems to be elevated in the world. Believers, we are called to love one another in ways where we yield. We are called to have a phrase about us that sets it apart that says, after you, my friend. Where are you going? How can I open the door of life for you? And the willingness to yield for believers is one of those ways that we become salt and light. Because that is, in fact, imparted to us by the same spirit that was in Christ raising from the dead, also giving him a spirit of yielding. 
There is no gospel without a spirit to yield. It says in Philippians 2 that the Lord was equal, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and made himself of no reputation to become our bondservant, to serve you. Jesus, the living God, yielded his rights after you, my friend. Here's my life so that you can find yours. And when the moment came for the cross, which is what the wisdom of God is actually going to point you to, where all of us want to pump our brakes. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of God is the cross. Salvation of God is the king of the universe comes and dies. He doesn't conquer one army. He doesn't make one political move. The wisdom of God is that the Son of God would come and lay down his life to conquer sin and death itself and then pick it back up and invade this world with his spirit. That doesn't make sense to the world. And it doesn't make sense to you apart from the wisdom of God calling the fools for Christ to make them wise. And it required Christ to yield. As he approached the cross, he said, if it's possible to the Father in heaven to remove this cup from me, maybe there's a wiser way to do this. And yet, in his own moment of the desire for the will of God, the perspective of God, and to live life accordingly, he says, nevertheless. He doesn't say, I can't play under these conditions. He doesn't say, I'm leaving. He doesn't say, well, me too. He doesn't say, yeah, why don't you just maybe change churches, get a new pastor, get a new, uh, get a new friend group, get a new family, get a new political group. It's like we can't yield to each other, so it's just one broken relationship after the other, and we see the Savior of the world invade and say, here's my life. For anyone who believes, now pick up your cross. The beginning of wisdom starts with a cross. It starts with yielding to the power of God in your life. Mercy, full of, or wisdom, full of mercy. Mercy, or wisdom, non-partial, non-hypocritical. In other words, the wisdom of God comes and meets you when your hands are open and your heart is sincere. But when you have your desires, your bias, your partiality in the way that you want the wisdom of God applied to your life, you're looking for the wrong thing. It's not partial. God's plan for your life is not partial to what your plan for your life is. That goes with your neighbors and your relationships and the people he has called you to lay down your life for. I will remind us of something we did last week. We, we read Jonathan Edwards' Resolution for the Tongue. What a beautiful thing. Jonathan Edwards is way smarter than me. I've read that 10 times and I still was resolving to try to understand the tongue. Um, today, we don't have Jonathan Edwards, but we, I, um, I liked the format of the quote, so I want to share my own resolution for this in the Jonathan Edwards format, and I covered his face to give him more of a modern look. So, <laughs> It's not a quote, but this is his format, so the shout-out is there. What if we did this? What if we resolved to live out wisdom in this way? What would church and family, and witness to the dying world look like, if this was our resolution. I resolved to live with heavenly wisdom by purifying my motives and denying selfish ambition, making peace with God and people, 
being gentle with my words and conduct, rejecting stubbornness and extending mercy without partiality or insincerity. When making decisions, I will try them strictly by the test of this resolution. We're still in January, so maybe some of you are looking for something to apply the word of God specifically to your life in a resolving kind of way. And may I offer you this resolution. What if you lived your life according to the wisdom of God? Purified wisdom from above, rejection of the world. And what if you measured that wisdom by the substance of your character and not your religion? Here's where this all leads us to, where the the bitter fountain turns into every evil thing in confusion. Here is the promise for those of us who accept this free, liberal wisdom from heaven. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is a message of good news. The wisdom of God is not condemning The wisdom that you're invited to live by today is not shaming you. It is sown in peace by the God of all peace who made the first act of peace by sending his son that you would know peace. And you will be marked as you sow the righteousness of wisdom into your life, the fruit of your life. What comes out should be radical peace. That's what the wisdom of God will lead you to. So we're going to sing one final song. There are two people I always talk to. One of them is the person that doesn't have any relationship to the God of this, of this wisdom. The beginning of wisdom for your life starts by acknowledging the reality of your maker. The beginning of wisdom for your life starts when you realize that your ways will not end well. The beginning of wisdom is to say that you need a Savior And to accept that free gift of salvation as an act of peace from God to you. It's free. You proclaim his name. You give your heart to him. And then you grow in the the way that you see his perspective for your life. And the second person that we always encourage is those of us who believe. We, we want the wisdom of God. We, 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 We mine it like someone who's looking for gold or rubies. Be refreshed in it a new wave of the word of God washing you from those roots of things that lead you to anything but the peace of God. May we be a people who will open our hearts and our lives to the wisdom of God and walk in it.